Hi, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an award-winning Irish journalist and photographer whose work documents migration, conflict and humanitarian crises. She's reported on, amongst other stories, Syrian politics, UN corruption in Sudan, Ebola in the DRC. Her work's been published in a host of renowned international publications on six continents and been translated into nine languages. Her first book is My Fourth Time We Drowned, an account of the harrowing journeys taken by North African refugees seeking sanctuary in the West and how their fates are shaped by European migration policies. It was named 2022 Irish Book of the Year and it won the Orwell Prize for political writing, amongst many other mentions. Sally Hayden, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, your book first came on my radar when I was judging the Bailey Gifford Prize and all of us were so impressed by it that it made the long list first and then the short list, each time meaning that we all read it again. So you have a band of loyal readers out there who've really been struck by what an important work this is. Yeah, thank you so much. And it's worth saying, like, I never expected it to get any of that type of recognition. And it really makes a difference in terms of it reaching people. So I was so delighted. Well, I think it's just really important because what you did was you took a deep dive into this issue that we only know from one side. If you live in Britain and you have a comfortable life, you're aware of the political discourse about migrants, but you're not really aware of what the situation is for the migrants themselves. And when we call it a migrant crisis, I think you point out in the book, it's a crisis for the migrants. It isn't necessarily a crisis for those receiving them. Yeah, I mean, that's true. And the book, it begins with a Facebook message that I got when I was actually in London. I was living in London at the time. And um, it came from somebody, an Eritrean refugee who was in a Libyan migrant detention centre, basically in the middle of attempting one of these journeys and having gotten interrupted or stopped on the way. And basically what happened from that point is that I started gathering information. I started being contacted by people all along the migrant routes, like from uh, various countries, dictatorships, wars, you know, people fleeing persecution, people also fleeing crushing poverty. And they were communicating with me through hidden telephones as they were doing these journeys. And so I guess, yeah, in one sense, this is really hearing from the voices of the people themselves. I wonder what drove you to to be interested in this in the first place. You're a young writer, you're from Ireland, you don't necessarily live with any of these issues right now. Tell me about your background. Yeah, sure. So I actually studied law and I kind of, I think I wanted to be a writer or a journalist in some sense, but I didn't really know any writers or journalists, so I wasn't totally sure how it happened. But I read a lot when I was when I was growing up and um, I studied law basically because I was interested in how the world works, you know, and that's one way of kind of learning about that. And then I did a master's in international politics. But along the way, I was applying for journalism internships and I ended up getting, you know, to cut a long story short, various different work experience and internships and opportunities and ended up in Vice News when it was starting out in London. So I worked there as a staff writer from 2014 to 2016. And 2015 was obviously the year of the, you know, so-called European migrant crisis. And in August that year, David Cameron, I'm sure you remember, had said that there were swarms of migrants who were trying to get from Calais to to the UK. So I 
you know, me and my editor were in London and Shoreditch in the office and just went, what does this mean? Like swarms of migrants, you know, who are they? Like, why are they coming here and, and what are they trying to do? And what's going on that we're not understanding in this situation? So I was only 25, I think, and, you know, still had only been a journalist for a year or two. And it was pretty much my first assignment where I actually got to leave the office and go out and do something. And Vice had given me like a thousand business cards. So I went off to Calais uh, with photographer Freddie Paxton and we basically just started meeting people and everyone I met, I'd give them a business card and just stay, stay in touch, you know, let me know how you get on or what's happening. We want to cover this better. And I ended up with contacts from all sorts of countries all over the world, like Syria, Afghanistan, Iran, a lot of African countries, Eritrea, which Eritrea ended up featuring prominently in the book. But that was, you know, that was a point where I then started understanding this is a much, much greater story than what we actually hear where we are. And those were my first sources that led to me reporting on migration. But it wasn't that I just decided, you know, I want to report on this. I, I was just seeing that it wasn't being reported well. And I also was then being contacted by people more and more who had seen my work or had met me. Language is so important, isn't it? Swarms, that's such an evocative word. And and I think we need to be very, very careful about our use of language around this issue. Yeah, and I think even writing the book, I mean, I have had to question myself a lot over the past, um, you know, seven years that I've been reporting on migration to ask myself like whether the language that I'm using is correct and also whether the way that I write certain stories potentially have contributed to the dehumanization of people because particularly like 2014, 2015, 2016 when I covered daily news I would cover a lot of the drownings and shipwrecks and you know, it would just be like 100 people died trying to do this and and it would be a short news story and you'd have to ask yourself afterwards, you know, I didn't have the time necessarily to look into what was happening properly. You know, we had a lot of pressures in terms of having to cover a lot of stories, but you did have to ask yourself every time I write a story like this, am I making it easier for people to turn off and shut away and ignore the fact that these are actually people who are dying? Mm. The book begins pointing out the importance of a phone, of a SIM card, and the lengths that people will go to to hide it, to get it and to be able to use it. Yeah, and one of the themes running through the book is the use of technology and the fact that technology has made it like impossible for us now to say that we don't know what is happening in other parts of the world and impossible for us to you know, not be able to access information about abuses, including what, you know, ones that are actually being perpetrated in our names as my book covers. And at the same stage, it's you know, you have this dichotomy where people are turning away and they are ignoring it. And so that was, you know, that that's a theme that runs through both in terms of how refugees and migrants use phones to raise ransoms, to stay in touch with each other, to track down people who are missing, to communicate with me, obviously, to communicate with each other. And then also the idea that, you know, I'm not the only one who could be contacted like this because the book begins with me being contacted. It wasn't me going out and looking for information. And actually, that could happen to many, many more of us. And I guess one of the questions I was asking is if it happens to you, are you going to actually respond and are you going to engage or are you going to turn away from it? 
I mean, what you uncovered was really a, a terrible crime that's going on. These Libyan detention centres, and they are not refugee camps, and you make that point very, very clearly. These Libyan detention centres, migrant centres, where people are taken, sometimes for years, where they are suffering torture, beatings, they are being um, having to play bribes. They, I mean, it's, it's an appalling situation, and I want you just to take us through what that journey is and why and how people end up there. And a lot of it is to do with the people smugglers and the fact that the that the goalposts change all of the time. Yeah, I mean, I was in communication, I'd say, with hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years that I worked on this. And people were messaging me all the time, every day, like many people with information about what they were going through. And Yeah, I began piecing together the different kind of routes and the different stories and the different experiences. A lot of my contacts were from countries that had war or dictatorships like Somalia, South Sudan, Eritrea, places where if they could reach a safe country, they could then claim a legal right to stay in it, most likely. So they'd most likely be recognized as refugees. But then you also had people who were fleeing, you know, crushing poverty or other situations, and they were all coming together in Libya. So Libya basically is kind of a Uh, taking off point for people trying to reach Europe, particularly Lampedusa, Malta, sometimes Sicily, by boat. So that's the central Mediterranean route. The UN has called it the deadliest migration route in the world. And people will go to Libya through smugglers or traffickers. And this is one thing that I hadn't understood. We obviously see the images of people in boats, you know, making dangerous journeys. But that's only the end of a very, very long process that is, you know, equally deadly, if not more deadly. And so you'll have people, you know, leaving these countries, traveling through the desert for like a week or longer. Then they're held in warehouses by traffickers or smugglers and potentially held there for up to a year, sometimes longer. They can be tortured there. They can be forced to pay ransoms that are many, many times what they had initially agreed to pay. And the reason that they're ending up in this situation is obviously because they can't get visas you know they can't get on planes they they have no legal route to safety and so then in Libya if they're lucky at some point they'll be put in a boat and the boat is actually their chance to escape you know this kind of situation of torture and and captivity that they've been trapped in but since 2017 and this is really the the point where the book begins this is really actually why I spent so long on this because this was the part that shocked me the most is that hardening EU migration policy means that since 2017 the EU is supporting the Libyan Coast Guard with tens of millions of uh, euros in funding to intercept boats of refugees and migrants and force them back to Libya so that they, they won't reach Europe, basically. They're trying to stop people from reaching Europe. And so the EU is flying drones, helicopters, planes to spot the boats of refugees. And then what happens next is a circumnavigation of international law because under international law, European vessel could not return people to Libya, but a Libyan vessel can. And so since 2017, more than now, I think 114,000 men, women and children have been caught at sea, forced back to Libya. And there they're generally or often locked up indefinitely in detention centers where they're not charged with anything. They're just locked up. And yeah, I mean, the detention centers is a big focus of the, the book because that's, you know, where 
horrific things are happening. Like Pope Francis, among others, has compared them to concentration camps. And, and this part is happening as a direct result of European Union migration policy. And for me, that was, you know, that was the really shocking part actually was that this, when I first got those communications from people, I didn't understand why they were in a detention center or how this had happened. And I thought it must have been some sort of oversight or maybe they had done something wrong, you know. And actually, I found out that they were there as a direct result of European Union migration policy. So they were there, you know, in my name, essentially, as a European. I really want to take this slowly through the journey because the way you write it is incredibly affecting. So taking somebody, say, who leaves from Sudan, driving through the desert, that drive with people dying on the way or wanting to stop, corpses being thrown out of the vehicles. Yeah, I mean, those drives are incredibly dangerous. And I've actually been to Sudan and met people who have you know, tried to make these journeys and not made them because you also have different trafficking groups or different militias that will fight each other in the desert. So you might have gone with one smuggler or trafficker and you'll be in the back of their, uh, you know, the Hilux vehicles. They That was what they tended to ride in. And yeah, they tell you, like, we're not going to stop if you get off for any reason we're not we're leaving you behind you know and people would fall off because they're packed inside them and they're left without enough food without enough water so yeah people would die and their bodies would be thrown off or they'd fall off and just be abandoned and then sometimes also you'd have fights between the different groups in the desert and you could end up with people being abandoned that way so yeah that was the first major hurdle and a very very dangerous one and then once they get to these detention camps i mean they've paid a certain amount of money to a smuggler but once they get there they're given a minute to call their family because the price has suddenly gone up tell us how that works yeah so what you have then is a series of stops in places that are controlled by the smugglers or traffickers and so people after they cross the desert they'll have made an agreement you know i'll pay you for example two thousand dollars to get to Europe and they'll be told you'll be in Europe within a few weeks. And once they get into Libya, they'll be brought to one of these big warehouses and put inside and basically told, you know, you thought it was $2,000, but actually it's five or $6,000 and your family are going to have to pay it. And if they don't pay it, you're going to be tortured and denied food. And then, yeah, there would be a queue. So people would queue up. They'd be made to call the family every day. They get one or two minutes on the phone. There's somebody monitoring all the phone calls. And, you know, in, in certain warehouses, there would be um, the transfer details for sending the money stuck on the wall so that they could call out whichever one, you know, whichever place their family is in the easiest way for them to send money. But and they would, you know, potentially there'd be an armed man with a gun or, you know, a stick or whatever threatening them or somebody else who had been injured. Because one of the things I was told that the smugglers or traffickers would do is, you know, they'll really grievously injure one person as a warning to everybody else. And apart from that, so this is separate to the detention centres. This is why you're still with the smugglers. But you know, there were all sorts of other abuses, like a lot of rape, a lot of sexual violence towards women. And yeah, just different. Uh, another thing that I documented as well, speaking of technology, is people crowdfunding the ransoms. So if you couldn't 
raise enough money, if your family couldn't raise money and families would like sell their belongings, they'd go begging in churches, you know, in markets. If they can't raise the money, increasingly the smugglers or traffickers might say, well, we're going to post on Facebook and crowdfund the money. And so there were people then posting pictures of, you know, their family member being tortured to try and crowdfund money so that enough money could be raised. Even then, when they get to the detention camp, so say they've they've got to the coast, they've now tried to cross the ocean, they've been returned. Obviously, there are so many things that could have gone wrong on the ocean. People have been having terrible, terrible experiences in the sea. They're returned to these to these camps in Libya, and the UN should really have oversight of this. Should be running it. There should be people checking that this is all working right. And yet, we know that these people are still being tortured in some cases. Are being starved. People are dying in those camps. How is this possible when the UN should have oversight? Yeah, I mean, it's important to say that. So, what you're talking about now is the detention centres that are aligned with the government. So, this is after people are caught at sea, they're forced back to Libya and locked up indefinitely in detention centres aligned with the UN backed government in Tripoli. And the UN doesn't actually run those centres. Those centres are run by militias. So, the UN, you know, is supposed to have access, but actually they don't have access all the time. And they will say that, like, they'll say, you know, we have access, but not to all of them at all the time, basically. I mean, my understanding is that they need to call ahead. And so by the time their staff show up, it might be that, you know, things have been cleaned up or sick or tortured people have been hidden or, you know, the conditions have been slightly altered. The electricity has been turned on, things like that. So, yeah, I think more what my book did document was Another question running through it is just who we are listening to when we're actually thinking about these situations. And when I was learning about the UN in Libya, basically, I started getting contacted actually by a lot of UN staff who were incredibly uncomfortable at the way that they were working in Libya. And I also started noticing that certain statements might not reflect what I was being told by people inside detention. For example, like if a detention center ended up on the front lines of conflict, which happened quite regularly, and people were moved, like detainees, refugees were moved, the UN might release a statement saying that they'd been moved out of harm's way when actually they've been moved into another abusive detention center, which was also like on the front lines pretty speedily after that. And so I think... I was contrasting their public statements with what I was actually being told from my sources inside the detention centres. But also it became quite clear, you know, speaking to UN staff that they would basically say the EU funding, I'm sorry if this sounds complicated, hopefully it's explained better in the book, but the EU funding that is supporting the Libyan Coast Guard is through this multi-billion pot of money called the EU Trust Fund for Africa, which is basically aimed at stopping migration. And that same pot of money is also funding the UN Refugee Agency and IOM's work in Libya. And UN staff would say to me that they were concerned that they were being used basically to whitewash the EU's migration policy and the brutal impacts of it. Because when EU politicians were interviewed about, you know, how could you be supporting the interception of incredibly vulnerable people who are then being forced back to indefinite detention, where, for example, many, many were and are dying. You know, nobody is monitoring how many people die after they're forced back to detention. But EU politicians would say, well, we don't approve 
initiative of the detention centres, but we're trying to improve the conditions by supporting the UN to work in them. And, you know, that that was kind of part of the problem because then if the UN is releasing statements that aren't being clear about why people are in these detention centres or even sometimes about the conditions inside them, that, you know, there were concerns about that basically. And And from my perspective, you know, I just wanted to make sure that we were also listening to the people most impacted by this, which is the refugees and the migrants, really, the people who are actually experiencing this themselves. There was allegations of bribery, though, of UN staff. So that was in Sudan, and I actually reported in Sudan. So Sudan is neighbours Libya, and a lot of Eritreans and Somalis and... Uh, I think South Sudanese as well will go through Sudan on the way to Libya. And I had been in Sudan in 2017, so the year before I got contacted by people in Libya. And I had been interviewing refugees there who were telling me that the UN refugee agency, the resettlement program, basically was marred by corruption. And what the resettlement program is, you know, when people talk about jumping the queue and all of this stuff, I think what they're referring to sometimes is refugee resettlement, which is a very, like, limited opportunity for a very limited number of people to be moved to a safe country, you know, if they're already refugees in a pretty insecure country, but that's not their own. And so in Sudan, the refugee resettlement program what I was being told was that UN refugee agency staff were taking bribes to move people out of Sudan. So basically, this was the kind of so-called legal route. But refugees were telling me, you know, if you have a family and you want to be resettled, it will cost you about $20,000. But, you know, basically, they were like, if you can't afford that, we don't trust in the program. That's why people are going through Libya. And so uh, I started investigating it and it took me about 10 months. I ended up speaking to UNHCR Sudan staff who told me that this was happening as well. And I published the investigation in May 2018. And two days later, UNHCR announced they were suspending the resettlement program nationwide, deploying an anti-fraud team and... Later, they did find one staff member guilty of soliciting bribes and abusing power. So I didn't know at the time, but when I started getting contacted by refugees in Libya, it was because they knew of my work in Sudan, which had become quite known among refugees there. That was, I mean, it's in Sudan, but it's linked, right? Because I thought it was important to show the lack of faith in some of the official programs and in some of the official organizations that we kind of think or we, we trust in taking care, basically, of the rights of refugees. There was some personal risk involved in all of this. You received threats, and at one point you were actually investigated for being a human smuggler. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got death threats as well, and I was limited a bit in where I could travel at one point because of security warnings. The criminal investigation was very strange and I don't know exactly I don't know fully why it happened but it followed me going on a refugee rescue ship and I think the investigation went on for a year and then was closed obviously because there was no evidence because I'm not a smuggler. Rwanda, so many aspects to this. Obviously, the British government has this plan to send people who are seeking asylum here to Rwanda for them to seek asylum there. But I know that even before this programme was suggested, you had spent some time in Rwanda looking at the situation there. Yeah, and there's a chapter in the book on Rwanda. And actually, my I think my reporting was used as evidence in that case that was brought against the government trying to challenge the 
deportation of people to Rwanda. Yeah, I went there because the EU, well, actually I'd been there before as well to report on something separate, but I went again because the EU started using Rwanda as a transit country. So it was evacuating people from refugees. I mean, sorry, I say the EU actually was a deal between the Rwandan government, I think the African Union and UNHCR, but it's been EU funded. And basically people were getting evacuated to Rwanda and they still are and then being resettled on to other countries. So it was kind of a transit point where their asylum claims could be assessed. And that started in, I think, 2019. And I went out and actually some of my sources were then, you know, people I'd been in communication with on a daily basis inside detention centers were then evacuated to Rwanda. And so I finally got the chance to meet them. And I went out as soon as I could to do that. And it was incredible to meet them because, you know, in one sense, you know each other like quite intimately because you've been speaking to them when they're being starved or bombed or, you know, going through a lot of really horrific things. And at the same stage, you know, part of me was going, are are these people even real? Like, how could this be really happening? And so, yeah, I went to Rwanda. I realized, I mean, I knew this already, but it is a police state. It's hard to operate there. I was told that I was only given journalist accreditation because the government believed I would write good things about them. And I was explicitly told that. And then I wasn't given permission to access the refugee camp where they were being held, the transit camp. But I ended up just going to meet people elsewhere. And yeah, I don't know what else I can say about Rwanda particularly, except that I'm not surprised because... Like Rwanda, it is a dictatorship, you know, it it is not a place where there is freedom of speech. And, you know, there are allegations that the current president is using these sorts of deals to kind of get away with other human rights abuses, basically. Absolutely. Further reading on that is, in fact, Michaela Rong's book, isn't it? Yeah. Which talks a lot about that. We're running out of time, which is awful because there's so much that we could talk about. I mean, for instance, you you followed some refugees who did make it and you looked at that trauma because everybody who's made the journey has lost someone, even if it was just a friend. It's a kind of a situation that forges incredibly huge spirit of community. And so when they get to the other end, of course, they're traumatised in some way. You speak to people who've survived, people in Sweden and so on. You also speak to people who go back. Joseph who goes back to Sierra Leone, for instance. You make the difference between people who are escaping from West and East Africa. You have some very helpful maps in there. It's a book that I feel everybody should read to understand this crisis before they have an opinion on it, because people do tend to shout out about this with really not knowing what's going on. What can we and what can governments do to prevent abuses of refugees? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. And sorry, just before I answer it, I'd just like to say as well, because it has been a challenge to get people to read this book and engage with it. I mean, I did try and document, you know, everyday life and and good sides as well as bad sides and just people's personal stories just in a way that hopefully has made it a bit readable because oh, no, I know absolutely. that. <laughs> no, I, 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 I just should, always, I always yeah. feel like I should say that because yeah. I know it can, you know, it can feel like people just don't want to engage and that is a really a big struggle. I I should absolutely endorse that and say it's completely readable and it's a book that you want to keep on reading and it's not because it's it's all about the misery. It's a kind of detective story in a way. You're following all these stories. It's deeply human story and it is deeply affecting and one smiles but one also does cry. Yeah, 
And in terms of what people can do, I mean, how can you stop abuses? I think we should just be listening to people who are experiencing things. I hope that it comes through in the book that that's what I was trying to do, certainly. And at the same stage, I was shocked by what I was hearing by listening to people's voices, you know, the people who are actually going through this process. And... Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the further away we get from actually listening to those voices, the more abuses can happen. And there is an attempt right now to deliberately silence people. And I think that's pretty clear from my reporting, certainly. I also think, like, no matter what people feel about migration, there needs to be a lot of questions asked about how money is being spent. And I think it's pretty clear from my reporting anyway that huge amounts of money are being spent. I mean, you mentioned the UK-Rwanda deal. It's another case of this. They're being spent in situations that are actually propping up dictatorships, militias and abusive systems that are oppressing people further and increasing the reasons why they actually need to flee. And there's a scene in the book where I'm on the refugee rescue ship and we actually start rescuing Libyans from the sea or I mean the crew did. And they're saying, you know, the militias are now so powerful that we have to escape from them. And the militias are the ones that are, you know, also profiting from this situation of people being sent back to Libya and put in their detention centres, you know. So I think for me, you know, I work as a journalist, so I don't like suggesting specific policy, but learning about the consequences, listening to refugees and informing yourself, whether that be through reading this book or any other way. I mean, I just think that's essential. Well, Sally, I can't recommend the book highly enough. I think everybody should read it. It's called My Fourth Time We Drowned. It's published by Half Collins, Fourth Estate and Melville House in the US. It's out now. It's also out in paperback now. Uh, Sally Hayden, many thanks for joining me on Meet the Writers. Thank you so much. Thanks also to our production team of Nora Hall and Andre Nikolai Paminchuan. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.